I think for the first time in my entire ministry experience, I'm the youngest person in the room. Uh, I'm looking around thinking, nope. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you guys again. Um, we are in Psalm chapter 8 tonight, and uh, I am a sucker for underdog stories. You guys know what I mean when I say that? Underdog stories as people striving against unsurmountable odds to... Uh, overcome some huge obstacle. It's just something is powerful about that. Um, and I think I'm not alone in that because our culture has a plethora of movies and stories out there that I'd like to share. Uh, just, just to list a few of them. There's the movie 300. The 300 follows the story of, uh, the 300 Spartans who lived uh, in the, in the, the fifth century BC in which, uh, 300 Spartans faced off against 500,000 Persians at the Pass of Thermopylae in ancient Greece. And do we have a picture? Oh, we do have a picture up there. Cool. Uh, another one's Happy Gilmore. That's another one if you guys heard of this movie, um, which is not exactly as serious as 300, but this is the story of a hockey player who enters into the realm of golf and manages to beat the, the evil shooter McGavin and just overcomes insurmountable uh, um, obstacles. Another would be Cool Runnings, if you heard of this one. This is about the Jamaican bobsled team, which if you know anything about Jamaica, doesn't have any snow, so these guys haven't even had a chance to practice. Um, and they need to go the distance as well. Rudy is another one of which young Rudy Rudiger of Notre Dame College goes out and he tries out for the football team. He's a hundred pounds soaking wet and he proceeds to go out there, try out for the team and he gets to play in his first game. Uh, then a little more well-known is Lord of the Rings in which two hobbits over the course of three very long books and probably longer movies, especially the extended edition, I would say, go out and they need to destroy the one ring, the evil ring that if they destroy this, they can bring peace to their world once again. And possibly one of my favorites, Rocky. This is the ultimate one. Um, I am safe to say that if you do not like Rocky, I question your patriotism, especially number four. Um, but I think what I, I bring these up because I think it's built into our DNA to love underdog stories. There's something about weakness combating and becoming uh, victorious over strength that is, is something that is deep inside us, not just God's people, but all of us. And our culture reveals that something about that's profound. And I think God is a fan, too. And Psalm 8 is where I really think this shows itself. God often uses weak people to do incredible things, not because of their power, but because of his. And the Bible's full of these stories. You have weak little Israel. God tells Israel, it's not because you are the most populated nation or the strongest, but because God loves you. And continuously, God shows his power through weak little Israel in just magnificent ways. Gideon's another story. You have Gideon, who God calls to be a mighty warrior in the book of Judges. We see Gideon first uh, taking a, a pitchfork and, and shoveling uh, grain, threshing grain in a wine vat, which if you know anything about that, it, it, you would shove, you would rake the, the wheat and you throw it into the air and all the chaff would blow away and all the heavy wheat would fall to the ground. So you need wind to do that. Um, he's doing it in a hole because he's scared of the Midianites that are coming in. So it's not exactly a mighty warrior ready to face the enemy. He's kind of a chicken at the time. And God comes out and says, that's my man. Mighty warrior. I'm going to use you for wonderful things. David the runt. David's the small one. When, when, when Samuel comes over and asks, do you have any other sons, Jesse? Where, where, where's, the, where's the one who's going to be the future king? He says, he's the, the little shepherd boy. Have we try, maybe we could try him. And that's the one God picks to take on Goliath and become God's man to rule over Israel. And then there's the disciples, a bunch of 
unlearned fishermen, and they have become the most influential people in the world. They've, the reason we're here today, and I would say even us, use people like me to preach to a bunch of people significantly older than me, but much wiser than me as well. Psalm 8 is meant to encourage us, and our big idea from this psalm is marvel at God's story of using human weakness to glorify himself. That's what I want you to take away from this, and Psalm 8 is full of this. It's written by David, as I mentioned, who's a guy who's accustomed to being the little guy and overcoming great things, but read with me. I'm going to read the whole thing, and we'll go through it again. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I just want to pray real quick, Father God. I pray that you would empower me, speak through me, to show that you marvel in human weakness because it is an opportunity to glorify yourself and show yourself mightily. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. The first thing I noticed about this psalm, and I love this because I'm going through the psalms in my devotions, and I'll notice often uh, I'm a big fan of literary stuff. So I'll, I'll, if there's something repeated or, or uh, a psalm ends and it, start, it, uh, it begins and ends with a certain verse, that's pretty cool to me. And it just so happens, it happens here in, in, in uh, chapter 8. You'll notice verse 1 and 9, the first and last verse of the psalm, are the same verse. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And if that is how you begin and end your psalm, that's probably pretty important. So hence why I've titled this sermon that. But there's one thing I notice. You'll notice that the, there's two different versions of Lord in chapter, in verse one and verse nine. There's a capital L-O-R-D and then there's a lowercase L-O-R-D. And that's because in Hebrew, there's two different names for God here. The one in all capitals is the name Yahweh. It's the name, it comes from the Hebrew verb, to be. It's literally, I am. And I find that incredible. This is the name that God told Moses to refer to him as the burning bush. And I always thought it was interesting. Why did God show up as a burning bush? And I think it's to show that the flame is not dependent on the bush for its own energy. It exists all by itself. It is self-existent, not dependent on anything. So that is an opportunity to just give and present itself. I have no, no need of you, but I present myself willingly to glorify myself. The other word, the lowercase l-o-r-d, is the word Adonai, and it means master. So David is saying, O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. O Yahweh, our master. And what he's saying is, you're majestic. That means unique. How unique are you in all the earth? David is blown away. And what, 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 what makes God so unique here? 
At the end of verse 1, you have set your glory above the heavens. That's pretty cool. We could look around and see God's magnificent creation everywhere. But he doesn't stop there. Continuing into verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. There's one thing I notice here, because this verse has always confused me for a long time. What exactly is going on here? Something about babies and the enemies of God. And I think there's a contrast going here, because one thing that God does throughout the Bible is he stoops to make human weakness triumphant over his enemies. And that is one way in which God is majestic and unique. He does incredible, mind-blowing things like using the weak to defeat the strong. And what is more weak than a baby? I love kids, and it's just, but at the same time, they're completely dependent. It's just like a little, it's about the size of a Chipotle burrito, and it, it's, it's, and it's in desperate need of everything. It cries in the middle of the night. You need to go help it. It, 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 it feeds, I, I want to eat everything, and I want to eat it now. And then we're going to do this again every five minutes for, until I turn 18. So it's, but they're, they're constantly dependent. But notice this, that these babies, from the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength. So it's from these little ones, these little, weak, innocent ones, completely dependent, that God has magnified himself through their praise. Contrast that with the enemy and the avenger, probably a little more intimidating than a baby, I would imagine, but they're still, they're silent. As I go through the Psalms, it's interesting, as I mentioned, I go through the Psalms in my devotional, but you have weak little Israel crying out saying, help! And then they'd rejoice almost prematurely as if it's like they expect God's victory. And that's because Israel didn't recognize that they were strong. God was their secret weapon that made them unique, makes us strong. It's because of Yahweh, the majestic one, that we are anything. And I see always the wicked in the Psalms, they always show up and they're, they're, they're sneaky, they're conniving, they, they, they slay you with their words like a sword. And when they're defeated, they're silent. And that's contrasting here. I find interesting that God uses the weak to silence the strong. That is amazing to me. And this is repeated again in Matthew 21, that Jesus showing up to the temple in the triumphal entry, he shows up and he shows up on a donkey. Now, one that was prophesied as well, but what's interesting about a donkey is if you showed up on a donkey, it usually suggests peace, meekness, mildness, weakness, so to speak. Huh, something different. You had all these, these Jews just, just throw out the Romans, Hosanna, save us, and uh, quoting Psalm 118, thinking that they're gonna, he's going to kick them out. But if he was there for war, he would have showed up on a war horse, which is significant if you consider Revelation there for war as opposed to there for peace. And as Jesus is approaching the temple, you have a, a, a small crowd of little children crying out saying, Hosanna! And the rabbis are saying, make them be quiet. He says, haven't you read? Out of the mouth of the babies and infants, you've established strength. Whoa. God uses human weakness to glorify himself. Marvel at that. It doesn't stop there. He zooms out and he says, that's not all to the story. He zooms out and looks at verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? 
So he's considering the work of God's hands, the majesty that was displayed in verse 1. And we recognize how small we are. I, I, I hear atheist professors when I'm in my college days just marvel at the inside of a cell or just the expanse of the universe. I had the privilege of being able to teach astronomy as a substitute teacher for the last two months, and it was magnificent. Did you know it takes the light from the sun eight minutes to get to Earth going at the speed of light? And I think, that's huge. That's incredible. And, and it's just, it should make us feel small. I had a professor at community college. He would wax eloquent over the cell. He would just show us the insides of a cell. And they'd say, what does that look like, class? And one brave student said, design. My professor gets up and says, there is no design. Really? That's quite different from the thinkers of the scientific revolution, like, like Nicholas Copernicus or, 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 uh, or, or Johann Kepler or, or Tycho Brahe or, or Galileo Galilei. These men would look into microscopes or through telescopes looking at the wonder of creation, saying, look how incredible our God is. It's amazing. Goodness. Weak little man whose breath in his nostrils. What's so important about him? What's so impressive about us? We're so, my goodness. What is a man whose breath is in his nostrils, did the psalmist say? Just plug man's nose, cover his mouth, and what, he's dead in five minutes? Something, we're so fragile. What are we compared? What's so important about man? In fact, that same professor I mentioned, he would, he would show us, he, again, he was, a, he was a devout evolutionist, but he would, he would show us pictures of a, of a hippopotamus or a leopard, and he would say, you see this, human? You can't beat this. You think you can defeat this? You can't beat this. You know what? On one level, he's right. We're not armored. We're not clawed. We can't fly. What's so impressive about weak little man? But David doesn't stop there. Starting in verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Weak little man has been crowned. What? Weakness is crowned over the, the might of creation? Rule over the work of God's hands. That's incredible to me. You, you should hear Genesis here. If you don't, then please do. But it's always interesting to me. Man is made in God's image, and, and theologians have always been, what, what is that? What is the image of God? And I think, long story short, it's, it's that we represent God. We are like him. Not totally, obviously, but we are a symbol of God's power. It's interesting, in the ancient Near East, if a Mesopotamian king conquered another nation, he would put images of himself everywhere. Those images were called selam. It's the Hebrew word for image. And it's the same word used here. So what is it saying when God takes a planet and puts seven billion of these selams everywhere? Saying, they're in charge. They're my vassals. They are the ones I've appointed to rule in my stead here. God's splendor, the one that David rejoices over in verse 1, is ruled by simple man, which means you are royalty. Ruling over all of God's creation. 
I'm a fan of environmentalism, but I'm also a fan of development. I think it's incredible what we've done with this. It, it, it's as if God gave us a, took Adam and Eve, put them in a massive sandbox of raw materials and said, do something incredible with it. Obviously, it's been fall, it, it's fallen and broken, but that hasn't stopped God from making his glorious story saying, no, 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 I'm not done with them. Rule over the work of my hands. I think that's amazing. So you know what? People say, Cody, you think we should go colonize Mars? If we can reach it, go for it. It's all, God has given all of this. Do something amazing with it. Steward it. Love it. Make it something glorious to my name. I'm a huge, hand, a huge fan of history. And man, I just, you, you look through history and some of the incredible things that have, that have been produced by mankind. And not even just, just physical things, but just, just more academic literature. We have Shakespeare and, 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 and others. Philosophy. Man, chimpanzees don't talk to each other about existence. That's incredible to me. The periodic table of elements. My goodness. Like we, we, we've charted all the elements we possibly could and we've made new ones. That's cool. I, I just find that incredible. Math and physics. It's as if an engineer made it all. I wonder, how is it that math works everywhere? It's as if there was a designer. God has granted little man the power to glorify himself as little creators. So when my professor gets up there and he says, you can't beat this hippo, I show him something like this. <laughs> you see this? You can't beat this. Or an Abrams tank or something, or, or a space shuttle. Have chimpanzees gone to the moon? If they did, it was with our help. <laughs> and I find that incredible when you look across the, the magnificence of God's world and it's all given to us? Weak little man? Francis Bacon, philosopher a few centuries ago, said little knowledge of science makes man an atheist, but in-depth study of science makes him a believer in God. Marvel at God using human weakness to glorify himself. But as you have no doubt noticed, this mighty commission to rule over God's creation, weak as we are through God's strength to magnify him through all our wonderful gifts, as special as we are, even our frailty, we're still broken. There is a, a very interesting apologetic argument that I've just recently been introduced to you about the last two years or so. It's called the anthropological argument. It's the argument that Christianity best explains humanity's dignity and depravity. We're capable of such incredible, wondrous feats, but also possible, we're capable of such incredible acts of depravity as well. Just the last two centuries, I'd say. Goodness, Hitler... Stalin, Mao, just to name a few. And then there's Roe v. Wade that has been taking so many lives to this day. We're capable of such incredible depravity. We all know this world is so fallen, so broken, full of pain and death. But God has not given up on us. He still loves the underdog story. He still loves, he says, I'm not done with you yet and I won't let the story end this way. I'm still going to show how human weakness can glorify me. And Psalm 8 proves this in the way it is used in the New Testament. 
because it is cited elsewhere, especially in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6 and 8 attributes the passage about man to Jesus, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. It's almost as if God says, yes, it is broken. Yes, it is messed up, but I'm not done with it. And I love the underdog story so much that God, the author, will write himself into his own story to see it completed. And that's what he does. God himself dawns on human flesh and soul and mind and heart, comes down to planet Earth in the same way if we were to look at a colony of ants and say, I will become one of those. I will enter into all the larval stages and all the, the, the awfulness of that. I will grow as an ant and I will be killed by them. But it was so much worse because an infinite God subjected himself to being born of a woman subjected himself to be raised in a barn, basically. Consider that. He could come any way he wants, but he said, no, no, no. I love the underdog story so much, I will not come as a powerful king. Not at first. I will don a peasant's garment. Enters in humbly, serves, and dies horrifically into death itself. Yet he's Lord of all, and he's raised up later, even death itself. You can't get any lower than death at this point. That's the worst this world can throw at you. And he raises from taking the sin of the world upon himself. God, the author, entered into human weakness to glorify himself. The cross, a symbol of shame and weakness, has been used by God to triumphantly declare his glory and conquer the strong. The church, ragtag group of nobodies, that's what we are. We all are. We're still here. After 2,000 years, Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. 2,000 years later, you are sitting here because of human weakness being used as a tool to glorify the Lord, not depending upon our own strength, but upon His. He's writing the greatest story ever told, and it's not done yet. It continues from here, but continue to marvel that God uses human weakness to glorify Himself. Jesus said in Luke 12, 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Little flock, we're described as sheep, defenseless little sheep. That is incredible. Worthy of us saying, O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 